Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. It's been a quiet week in politics, so what else would the fat owl of number 10 do but kick over the very basis of international law? Boris Johnson's new internal market bill plans to reinterpret the special Brexit arrangements for Northern Ireland. And the EU are not impressed. There's an extraordinary meeting of the joint EU-UK committee on Brexit happening today, Thursday. Sky reports that there's an ERG revolt in the making because the new internal market bill doesn't go far enough for them. We've done the politics of this in some detail on The Bunker and in depth on tomorrow's Romaniacs. But what about the legal side? Can you break international law? What happens when you do? Who decides if you have? And what are the consequences? To help us, we have the finest legal mind and friend of the podcasts. By autocratic abrogation of the law and the power of Grayskull, it's master of the legal universe, David Allen Green. Hello, David. How are you doing? Hello there. Thank you for inviting me on. Delighted to have you on. As usual, the legal world is operating for your personal entertainment at the moment. Firstly, what exactly has happened here? And does it break international law? As the government has already admitted it does. We are in a spectacular situation. It's even more interesting than anything that has happened in the previous few years on constitutional issues. Hmm. Not only do we have a direct, express and deliberate attempt by the government to break its international obligations, which in and of itself would be the most remarkable of things, and something which was announced at the dispatch box openly, brazenly, by a minister of the crown, we have that same threat to do with the issue of the border on the island of Ireland. We have the possibility of the commons going against the lords, but in the topsy-turvy way of the lords being the ones which are going to hold the government to its manifesto commitment rather than the government trying to force through a manifesto commitment. In addition to what is, on the face of it, a direct attack also on the devolved administrations. So if you could have just one constitutional problem, that would be delicious. But for the government to be so ambitious that to try and force at least four constitutional issues in one go, it is the most spectacular thing I can remember in constitutional affairs. And it has gone even better than the last two two years of constitutional crises. It is a rare example of the third instalment of a trilogy being the best. So you're, you're essentially saying that this is even better than Return of the Jedi in constitutional terms? Absolutely. And the only thing we need are Ewoks to make this perfect. Well, you know, don't 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 rule anything out. So, like, take take us into the into the into the weeds of this. Then, you know, firstly, the specific legislation not to interpret the rules about state aid EU EU state aid rules to Northern Ireland to abrogate ECJ case law. This is, I am told, as a non-educated person, that this is the kind of the core, the the, the time bomb at the centre of this thing. Is that correct? This, yes, this is is quite. Uh, this has been coming some time. The starting point is to understand that the European Union take the single market very seriously. The single market comprises the four freedoms, but it also comprises the ways the market is policed. So competition law, public procurement law, state aid. State aid prevents governments from unfairly subsidising their own businesses to the the disadvantage of businesses elsewhere. It is a key part of the single market. And so when the uh, when the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, there were going to be a lot of tricky problems about the single market anyway, because this was a pan-European regime. It was never intended to be fragmented by one country departing and still wanting to have some sort of access. 
But that, in turn, was supercharged by the problems of the Irish border, because the general view, rightly, was that there should be no border on the island of Ireland, which would lead to some sort of break in commercial economic activity between the north and south. And so, given that the Republic of Ireland is obviously still very much part of the European Union, part of the single market, and there was to be no split between the north and the south in commercial matters, somehow, some way, the north of the island had to come within the ambit of the single market, including state aid. The UK government agreed in October, this government, Johnson, agreed that the north of the island would carry on being part of state aid regime of the European Union and agreed to a provision that this would also extend to the United Kingdom when necessary. This was deliberately agreed, knowingly agreed, and it was agreed to tr- as a number of things to try and get the agreement through. Now, 11 months later, The government is pretending, oh, we are so shocked at what we agreed. And they want somehow to get rid of this because on the face of it, it means state aid rules matter for the rest of the Great Britain. Now, we're told that it's fine, though, because they're only breaking the law in a limited and specific way, which obviously... All breaches of the law are specific and limited. Otherwise, (laughs) they're not breaches of the law. That is why indictments and particulars of claim exist you break the law in specific situations so that's no defense at Mm. all Uh, the problem the government has is that it well some people within the government don't like state aid law because they want to be able to throw money at private companies in a really nilly way and so this one provision of the withdrawal agreement article 10 of the protocol stands in their way because it means the whole of the United Kingdom have to have some sort of regard to EU state aid rules. And the strange, ironic thing for somebody who grew up in the 80s is that state aid was a legal cornerstone of Thatcherite economics. The whole idea of not choosing champions or picking winners was integral to the Thatcherite view of, of how single markets should work. And so in 2020, for a Conservative government to be wanting to do state aid in a way which a Corbynista would be proud of uh, is is an extraordinary turnaround. It's so topsy-turvy. Let's get this back to the to the to the actual legal stuff. Is there any precedent for governments setting international law aside or simply deciding not to follow it? I mean, we keep hearing this uh, George Osborne thing being cited. Is there any precedent for this, you know, this kind of a move going ahead without without sanction? Well, George Osborne has quite rightly been corrected by David Gork on this. What happened previously in the Finance Act was some creative compliance with international tax standards. It wasn't a deliberate attempt to break international treaties. It was a way of complying with them. This is unprecedented. The nearest example of this comes with a previous resignation of a senior legal official, because this week we saw the resignation announced of Jonathan Jones, the Treasury Solicitor. In 2003, Elizabeth Wilmshurst resigned as a senior foreign office lawyer because she saw the government was intending to act unlawfully in committing to its invasion of Iraq in the circumstances in which it did. And this is not an example of the government pushing an interpretation to an extreme. It's not the government taking a view and thinking it can survive a legal challenge. No, this is a government deliberately seeking to break the law. And that is why the Jonathan Jones resignation is so significant. And the bill which was published yesterday says 
uh, in a notwithstanding clause. And the word notwithstanding, Andrew, is one of the magic words of law. You can do so much with the word notwithstanding. I can tell by the way you said it, actually, David. It, it sort of rolled off. You, you were rolling it around in your mouth before you said it. Well, you can take us through it. It's as much a lovely legal word as, say, the word serendipity and lullaby are lovely English words in other contexts. <laughs> you can do so much with a notwithstanding clause. And what this government is doing with a notwithstanding clause is astonishing. You have to stand in awe of the beauty and elegance of what they're trying to do with Section 45. What they're saying is, notwithstanding any relevant international or domestic law with which this act may be incompatible or inconsistent, what it's saying there is, notwithstanding a court finds this to be unlawful, we're going to say it's lawful anyway. Why, why has nobody ever thought of this before? We don't need legislation at all now. We could just have this Section 45 across the board. So essentially, it's saying the law is not the law. Yes, it is an attempt to say we cannot be held unlawful. I don't think this is going to get through Parliament. I think the House of Lords, quite rightly, will challenge the government on this because it is the government reneging on the very oven-ready withdrawal agreement which it campaigned in the general election. It may not even get through the Commons, but if it did get through Parliament, I can see this being struck down by the Supreme Court Just and we would have Supreme Court Part 3 and I really hope Gina Miller brings the case so we can have the full trilogy with the same star, a bit like the Alien films with Ripley. Alien 3 wasn't as good as Aliens, though, was it? Let's face it. No, that you've, you brought up the Lords, and uh, Robert Pesson was citing the, you know, the delicious... You like not, notwithstanding. I like the, the Salisbury-Addison Convention, which is a bit like the Duckworth-Lewis method. The, we, you mentioned it earlier, uh, the idea that the Upper House won't block legislation that stems from a government's election manifesto. And in this case, it's flip-reverse bizarro world because they're going to hold the government to its manifesto commitments that it's trying to, to, trying to break. Plus, and this is something I remember from my A-level politics, any parliament can't debate something twice. If but, but, it's been laid through the session once, it can't be debated twice, so they're double, double oh, screwed, aren't they? Yes, well, the Salisbury Convention, in terms of chess, is usually a right attacking move. It means that you, the House of Lords can't oppose you because it's in the manifesto. And so anything which is in the manifesto, the Lords will not frustrate, delay, or vote down. But the beauty of this is the Salisbury Convention is flipping from a right attacking move to a black attacking move where the House of Lords is going to hold up the mandate, be the champions of the electorate, peoples and peers versus the government. David Lloyd George could only manage peers versus people. Boris mm. Johnson's going to try and get peers and people versus the government because it will be the House of Lords saying, no, you've got to take your mandate seriously. You went on this oven-ready deal. You got the general election mandate for it. You're going to be kept to it. Is there any chance that that other uh, parliamentary rule that I mentioned, that, that this could be prevented from going forward on the grounds that this session of Parliament has already debated and decided on this matter by okaying the withdrawal bill? That was something which John Burko relied upon in previous Brexit legislation. I wouldn't hold too much of it. This is very serious legislation which needs to get through one way or another. The Speaker may take a pedantic procedural point like that, but I wouldn't get my, one's hopes put up on this. But there are some parts of this bill which may be necessary in our brave new post-Brexit world to actually show that we do have a single market within the United Kingdom. So there is there are parts of this legislation which might be important to get through. But it is astonishing that state aid, of all things, is the thing a Conservative government in 2020 is willing to risk 
potentially four or more constitutional crises over. It, it is a weird hill to die on. It's or to make us all die on. It it, uh, it it is an astonishing position for for us to be to be in. And there's a further issue. There's the legalistic issue, but there's also the moral hazard issue. This government agreed to this in October. This government campaigned on it in the general election. This government put the withdrawal agreement into effect as primary legislation. This isn't something which a previous government has inflicted. It is not something which some international organisation has inflicted upon us. This is an international obligation we freely entered into and implemented and are now seeking to renege upon all within a year. Plot twist, the ARG are also making noises that they uh, will not support this legislation because it doesn't go far enough. I have yet to see exactly what extra they want in this, as you've described it, four-way constitutional cluster farrago. It's oh, it's wonderful. The ARG's position is they are they do not want to have a specific and limited violation of international law. They want a general and indiscriminate violation of international law. It is so extraordinary. But stepping back, what we have is a government that agreed to something to force through a withdrawal agreement so it could force through a general election. Remember the deal back in last year between the government and the opposition parties? You let us get the withdrawal agreement through. We will have a general election and vice versa. This this is an obvious consequence of that. This was always going to be happening. We now need to try and work out whether the government can deal with this problem in another way. At this moment, I think we need to not get too carried away with how exciting this is, although this is wonderful, but realise that the government is in a problem of its own making and it has to try and work out a way of of solving it because the integrity of the uh, single market in Ireland requires there to be some sort of state aid regime. The United Kingdom is just going to have to swallow that and work out a way of having a sensible state aid approach across the whole of the United Kingdom, which is compatible with there not being any sort of border to commercial activity on the island of Ireland. Before we wrap up, what happens when you break international law? It it depends. Uh, There are different types of international law. There are certain things like your obligations under international conventions and under the United Nations, where you have these sort of vertical obligations which you should comply with. They're generally quite difficult to enforce and often when you say you are in breach of international law you're not saying a great deal other than you are in breach of some sort of rules imposed or agreed to as part of a convention. This is not like that. This is a breach of an international agreement, horizontal agreement between the United Kingdom and the European Union. This has two consequences. The first consequence is within that withdrawal agreement, there are mechanisms for the European Union and the United Kingdom to resolve differences. If the United Kingdom are in breach, then the European Union can do certain things, and they have done. They've actually summoned an extraordinary meeting of the Joint Committee. That's the first step in the dispute resolution procedure here. But there's the normative problem with who the hell is going to do a deal with the United Kingdom in our post-Brexit, alone-in-the-world way, when we are breaking things we have freely agreed as recently as 11 months ago. The moral hazard is immense. It's one thing disagreeing with someone else, but when you've decided to disagree with yourself, it's a different kettle of fish. Absolutely. And this is a problem which was entirely foreseeable. It is there in the text in the October agreement. And now the government is trying to get out of it. There will be ways of dealing with this problem. 
The problem of Article 10 and the need for state aid in Northern Ireland and how that affects the United Kingdom can be solved in certain ways. But to, to actually have a deliberate attempt to breach it, have this Section 45, have ministers tell the Commons that they are going to, the government is going to break the law, this will not end well. But it will be quite interesting. And I am so looking forward to watching this one go through. David Allen Green, thank you for joining us. I have a strong suspicion we'll be talking about this again soon. Always happy, always happy to come on this podcast and well done on getting this going and all strength to you guys. Thank you, David. Uh, listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, as you may know, there is a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. There is a full panel show every Wednesday and you can hear us talking about the politics as opposed to the legal aspect of uh, this particular thing on this week's Bunker and also this week's Romaniacs where we really go to town on it. Uh, that one's out right now for Patreon backers if you want to have a listen thanks for listening we'll see you next time the bunker daily was produced and presented by andrew harrison the assistant producer was jacob archbold and audio production was by me alex reese theme tune by kenny dickinson the bunker daily is a podmasters production <laughs>